Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Firstly, I'd like to apologise for the quality of sound in this book chat, but not the book, it's a ripper. There's a quote from the author's notes at the back of Kirsty Manning's new book, and it's, I am in awe of historians who tenderly dive into our past to give us stories for our future. Well, I'm in awe of authors who can bring our past alive through fictional characters, and Kirsty Manning has done it again with The Lost Jewels. Welcome back, Kirsty. Thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful to be here, and thanks for your kind words. This piece of history that centres the book is the Cheapside Hoard. Now, explain what is the Cheapside Hoard? So the Cheapside Hoard is um, probably one of the most famous but mysterious collections of jewellery in the world. It's well over 500 pieces that were uh, buried sometime in the 1600s in London and um, nobody knows who they belong to and um, nobody knows obviously then why they were buried and they were dug up purely by accident on a worksite in 1912, a Cheapside worksite given the name. So it was a cellar. A whole bunch of workmen were demolishing a building and they dug dug up 500 pieces of jewels. And actually we don't know how many pieces they dug up because we don't know actually definitively if they've got them all but um they dug them up and they sort of made their way in various dribs and drabs sort of in footballs of dirt and clumps of dirt and tied up in hankies to a pawnbroker in London who went about acquiring them for the Museum of London so so that's the story of the Cheapside Hoard. Kate Kirby, she is a jewellery historian from Boston and she is called across to London to write a story for a glossy magazine about the Cheapside Hoard. But she has a personal um, interest in the Cheapside Hoard because she is, while she is an expert in Elizabethan and Tudor jewellery, she also um, had a great-grandmother who was a poor Irish immigrant but spent her early childhood years and womanhood years in London. And she always told these fabulous Irish folk tales. And she told the story of uh, being in London one day when some treasure was unearthed. And um, she kind of regaled her great-granddaughters with these stories but didn't actually tell Kate much about her true life in London. So... Kate is going to London in search of the story of the Cheapside Jewels, the true story of that, and she's also going to research her great-grandmother's history, and the two are intertwined. So Kate Kirby is in London, and she's uh, doing this investigative journal piece, which is paying quite a bit of money, with a, a photographer and Marcus Holt. Now, I like the way you always bring in an Australian, and uh, Marcus, quote, had an easy manner and just off the beach charm. <laughs> Very nice. So, well, we, we know that this job together gets them out and about. And she's also told to look past the shimmer and try to work how 
and why each piece was made. So they're shown a lot of these jewels, but there's three pieces that she decides to write the history of. Tell us about those three pieces. Uh, well, one of them is a diamond ring, a Champlive diamond ring. And um, with uh, rings, I guess you look at the history, the, the symbolism of the circle, the circle of life. And she's she wonders if it's a ring made for... Um, for an engagement or a betrothal or is it a memento mori ring which was really common uh, right through history especially in the um, 1600s uh, when there was so much death plague and so but in both cases whether it is a memorial ring or a betrothal ring um, they are both come from a place of love so um, she tries to figure out what the symbols on the ring are it's a it's an enamel ring. A champlive uh, is a French style of baking the enamel of black and white, and it's got a um, a very precious solitaire mm. diamond in the top. So uh, there's a there's an emerald watch that um, a huge chunk of emerald that in real life is described as being as big as a baby's fist, and inside mm. it is a is a watch is a timepiece. Uh, it's an extraordinary piece of um, setting and there's also uh, some gold buttons, some gold buttons uh, studded with jewels, with gemstones. As part of the uh, the journalism article, she's given the ability to actually go back to where these these the gems came from, and uh, so they they planted Marcus and Kate planted visit all the sites. So the first is in India. And this is where Kate realises that Marcus isn't just a good photographer, but very good company. Mm. So we'll, we'll leave the romance there and get back to what you've got as the real history. Gerhard Pohlmann. Well, what we do know about Gerhard Pohlmann was he was an extraordinarily successful merchant um, gem dealer, gem cutter, and... Um, goldsmith in he was Dutch originally and he made his fortune in um, Banda Abbas in Persia and he spent many many years there acquiring gemstones and um, jewels from across the Silk Route so it was kind of Banda Abbas was one of the hubs ships would come in and then um, jewels would come from India and in from Colombia and then they'd be sent back across to Europe back to um Milan or London or Antwerp or Dusseldorf or wherever they were cutting them and he he um he actually took a passage to go back to London to with uh, the bulk of his jewels so one of the gems he had was the diamond from Golconda India now I, I this was fascinating. Um, this area, Golconda, India, was known for diamonds as far back as 300 BC. And you wrote about Alexander the Great recording that the Golconda locals threw chunks of meat down to a valley floor, swarming with snakes, then sent eagles to lift the meat back up the mountain. And the, that the, the meat was studded with the clearest stones ever seen. Well, then we jump forward, you know, sort of 1,600 years, and there's families working and mining down in this steep um, gorge. 
always under the supervision of armed guards while they're sifting through the water there. So who was Sachin? Sachin. And what did he find? Well, Sachin is an Indian worker. He and his family, uh, as was the want in um, so much of India in Golconda, they all worked for the king then um, out of Hyderabad in the valley of Golconda, and they work in the river gravel um, digging these mines that were um, deep, literally holes in the ground, shaft mines, and they filter the gravel through um, large nets. He spent all day fishing through gravel with the hope of finding a a rough, a diamond rough, and occasionally they did, and there's stories of um, who found diamonds and they'd hide them in their turbans and they'd stick them in their eyes and up their noses and anywhere they could because, of course, if they were discovered with a diamond, they'd be killed straight away because their lives were so expendable. So um, So this lovely Sakin, he really wanted to save his family. So he's hidden the diamond, he's walked for days to the bazaar in Hyderabad, and he sells it. Now, how it got to London, that's where Kirsty Manning's story of the lost jewels starts. And that starts with a young girl caught up in the great fire of London. But there's another historical character, and you talked about him before, Stony Jack, the chap that acquired all of these diamonds in London back in 1912. And we find out that maybe not all of them were handed over to the police. Some made their way to his pawn shop. And this is where we follow the story of Essie and her family and how she met the man with the eyes the colour of emeralds. Essie was the oldest daughter and she was doing it pretty tough, wasn't she, in London? She was. I mean, I think uh, we hear about Edwardian London and the tailors of the women of the suffragettes, and they were very privileged women. I mean, they did incredible things to give women the vote, naturally, and women a voice. But um, there was, I guess, a wealthier class, but still the underclasses of London were still very Dickensian in their lifestyle. They were very poor. There were very few choices. Education was very limited and expensive for women to the point where it was considered a waste of money to consider keeping the girls in school past a certain age, past puberty, really. And so they were forced out into either workhouses or um, really menial jobs. And Essie has three younger sisters and she has an older brother. The older brother is a workman and he worked on that site in Cheapside. Essie herself works in tailoring. In fact, she, her big goal is to keep her younger sisters in school because they're clever and they have a world of opportunity and she just wants to make that happen for them. Uh, Gertie, Essie's younger sister, was very lucky to have a wonderful teacher, Miss Barnes, who really tried to support Gertie to further her education. And Kate now knows that Gertrude Ford went on to be a very socially progressive and uh, informative woman in London. And she finds out all of this through her cousin, Bella. What else does she find out from Bella? Um, Well, I don't want to give too much away, spoiler alerts, but she discovers that her cousin has 
a button, a gold button that looks not dissimilar to a button that was in the Cheapside hoard. So I love the way you integrated the the 1600s and the 1900s through the story and the storytelling. But we have Kate. You know, her job is as a journalist, which I think yours was also, Kirsty Manning, wasn't it? It was once upon a time, yes. I was employed to write feature articles. So what I really loved is we get one of Kate's feature articles, which is written in a journalistic prose rather than the rest of the book. And I liked it because as a reader, we knew so much by then, we could actually were more informed about what she was writing and why she was writing, we could actually could read between the lines. Look, another fa fantastic aspect of this book, The Lost Jewels, was learning about how all the jewels were made, uh, where, where they were found. The, the Sri Lankan jewels, that's why they had to go to Sri Lanka and that caused a, a, a deepening in the romance too. This was with Marcus who had gone to a lot of these mining areas and, if, and, and he was showing Kate some of the photos and he was telling Kate the stories behind the pictures he'd taken in gem mines around the world. A man dangling from a rope inside a cave in Colombia with just a head torch and a pick eyes bloodshot and inflamed from black dust as he fossicked for emeralds. Another photo pushing a wheelbarrow through snow thousand metres up in the Karakoram mountain range in northern Pakistan looking for rubies, quartz or aquamarine, uh, maybe a bit of topaz. And the last image was of a man in a turquoise sea with a net wrapped around his neck and a wooden peg fastened to his nose. Pearl diving, and this is these are these are photos taken now. So you just realise that sort of the, the conquest of fine gems is still very very relevant. So, the lost jewels by by Kirsty Manning. The story of a jewel tells a bigger story of trade and globalisation, design trends, economics and politics, about care and craftsmanship, and always about power, love and loyalty. This is still a quote from Kirsty's book. And wouldn't you think writing about power, love and loyalty would make the perfect point for a novel, right? <laughs> I like that. That was a just addition from, from the very end in your note to why the novel came around. Oh, look, it was such a readable story and I learned so much about making of jewels, making of enamel. Fascinating. Thank you. Yes, I always like to find a little forgotten pocket of history and I always find readers are quite interested in a process. Like they want to be on board of, um, like in the Jade Lily, my last book, they were quite interested in Chinese medicine. And I think if you give them a lovely process to be a part of, they come on board and I want them to be part of the jewellery making process in this book. Well, thank you so much, Kirsty Manning for her book, The Lost Jewels, published by Alan and Unwin. Thanks again, Kurt. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.